turn to our New Testament reading in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in the first verse. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Tonight we continue in the second of our new series in the book of Zechariah, in which tonight we'll cover the rest of chapter 1, that beginning begins in verse 7. And of course this chapter includes the first reference to the horsemen of the apocalypse. It's a fascinating topic, but I I don't intend to speak about it much tonight um, because they're explained later on, in fact, in this book, and Lord willing, we'll get to it. And just in anticipation, I'll mention uh, Zechariah 6.4. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? 
And the angel answered and said to them, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. And so they, in brief, they portray God's continual surveillance and activity on this earth. But no, the part I want to deal with tonight, I think, is even more remarkable. Uh, to me, it contains some of the most remarkable words to be found in the Old Testament, because here we have the angel of the Lord interceding for his people. That is an amazing thing. The pre-incarnate Christ remonstrating before the Father that he might have mercy on us. In the words of verse 13, the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. Well, I don't know how much better it gets. Here we have this remarkable ally, and the answer that he gets from the Father is, you know, certainly not a negative one, but rather he answers with these good and comfortable words. That's, that's what the gospel is all about, isn't it? It's good news. It's the evangel of good news. And the substance of those good words is that God declares his zeal for his people. You know, we've said in times past how good it is for us to be zealous for the Lord. In our time, uh, it seems as if any kind of zeal is considered to be bad. Well, zeal for evil is bad. Zeal in the name of a false religion is bad, but zeal for the Lord is without question good. It needs to be zeal according to knowledge, that's true, but that's precisely what he's asking for. That's good, that's very good. But don't you think it'd be an even better thing if God were zealous for us? What about that? Imagine that. What if he were zealous for us? That means that our salvation and ultimate well-being are so important to him, it is such a high priority for them that he will do whatever it takes to procure these things for us in his zeal. That is good news indeed, and that is the good news that we have tonight. The Lord's zeal for Zion, that's the title of our sermon. We have these four points. First, that Christ intercedes for us. The second, the Father is zealous for us. The third, God is angry with the nations. And fourth, he will again build Jerusalem. So first, Christ intercedes for us. It says in verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry with these 70 years? Of course, the question of kind of hinted at the answer, but who is the angel of the Lord? And the word, I don't know about your Bible before you, but the word is rightly capitalized in the text. This is the angel of the Lord that we have in Genesis 22, 11. Do you, I don't know if you remember this, but you remember how the Lord told Abraham to go sacrifice his son. And it says, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Now wait, that, that could be said by somebody else. But wait, it says, now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Speaking in the first person. He is not saying, thus says the Lord. He is speaking on his own behalf because he is God. This is the one, this is the angel that met with Moses in the burning bush. It is sometimes forgotten who it was that met with Moses in the burning bush. But Exodus 3.2 says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. That's the angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord that was, that, that was promised that he would send before his people into the promised land. This is the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's people that met with Joshua 
He is the pre-incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It's again what's so remarkable about the Old Testament is all these things that are shadows, all these things that are, are that give us the, the hints and elements so that the Trinity is no new doctrine when we come to it in the New Testament, but rather just the, the carrying out and the uh, more explicit telling of these things. Well, it's the angel of the Lord, it's the pre-incarnate Christ, and the question is, what is he doing here in Zechariah 1? Well, the answer is he's remonstrating with Almighty God. He's, he's interceding on our behalf, on behalf of God's people. And again, what kind of ally do we need when we have this angel of the Lord, this mighty angel, the Son of God, asking how long will it be until you have mercy? What an ally. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a, what a thought. He, he's living right now. He, didn't, he died, yes, but he rose again the third day. He, he's not in that tomb. Where is he? He's on the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He says he, he's interceding for us. He ever lives to make intercession. What, what material does he have? His shed blood. And this blood pleads on our behalf. And he speaks a word on behalf of the people as our intercessor. And that's what he's doing back in Zechariah 1. You know, God was very just to carry out the judgment upon Judah. For many generations, Judah had provoked God with her rank disobedience and spiritual adultery, turning to every god. It, it speaks of the, the language, you know, the prophets, that under every tree, every, every, every green hill, there was some uh, idolatrous temple or, or altar set up. The whole host of heaven, all the, the alphabet soup of the, of the ancient nearest gods they followed, they turned away from the living God that had, had done such good to them. And it's, it's a bizarre thing that they should do so wrongly. And to add to it, he even gave them a, a warning in that the northern kingdom of Israel was, was uh, destroyed by Assyria. And there was a long separate time between those two events. And, and the Lord speaks of these two sisters. Look, I, I judged this one sister and I was hoping that that sister would pay attention. But she didn't. She got even worse. She cast off all restraint. And eventually the Lord did what he promised to do, what he prophesied to do. And you know that timeline of 70 years, it actually comes from the fact that for about 500 years she had failed to carry out one of the, the law's basic provisions for a Sabbath year every seven. And that's why, that's why it says in Second Chronicles 36, all those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's amazing. Uh, not one word of God's law is going to go unfulfilled. He is going to fulfill it one way or another. And that is what happened in those 70 years. And of course, that scripture points us to another one. It points us to Jeremiah. The Jeremiah is quoted there. And I think particularly Jeremiah 25:11, And it says this, the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I'll bring on that land all my words which I pronounce against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. We'll have recourse to mention that prophecy again. But the point is, that, he, that this 70 years is what has been determined, and this 70 years is what has actually happened. And so, therefore, when the angel of the Lord, when the Son of God comes and says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? The basis of the intercession is God's own promise, because the 70 years have been fulfilled. He promised at the end of them to show mercy. He promised at the end of them to bring them back into the land. And so, therefore, he is not freelancing, we have to understand that the son is not on making some new word that was not previously there. He's only speaking to the father on the basis of that which is already there in place, these covenant promises. There is nothing else. There is no other basis upon which Christ or any one of us can possibly intercede for ourselves or anyone else other than the promises that God has made. And that's what he's doing. The years have been fulfilled. You have promised to be merciful, Lord be merciful. You know, again, we don't imagine a wrathful father being placated by a merciful son. That's sometimes the way popular culture or anti-Christian critics paint it, that you have a wrathful Old Testament God and all of a sudden we have a completely different God in Christ. Well, that's not true. We know that Christ is the image of the invisible God and whatever we see in Christ is God himself. And all the three persons of the Trinity are one God and they share alike all the attributes of God. They're all perfectly just because there's only one God in the three persons. Perfectly just, loving, merciful, gracious. All of these things, wrathful, jealous, all of these things are true of the one God. But this one God has made a promise. And though he is... Uh, just he is in his mercy, remembering his people. And the father desires the son to make that intercession. You see, that's part of what he's put in place. He, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the provision, the ultimate provision he has made. Because he loves his people, he has given us his son in order to be our intercession, in order to be our atoning sacrifice. And no greater provision could be possibly imagined than that we have him as God's ordained advocate before the Father. He's interceding on our behalf. The second part of this good news is that the Father is zealous for us. It's not just that the Son is interceding to one who's not listening. It's we find out that the Father is zealous for us. Verse 13, And the Lord answered the, the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. The angel who spoke with me said, Proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem, and with Zion with great zeal. You see the progression of this good news. It was certainly good news when the mighty angel of the Lord, this son of the pre-incarnate Son of God, stood up to make intercession for us. And it was that was good enough. But now he's answered by the Father, and the words that he gives are good and comforting words. Again, this is unusual. This is not the run-of-the-mill element of the Old Testament that we have. We have good and comforting words being spoken, the gospel. And what's the substance of that good news? 
It's even better news. It is, I am zealous for Jerusalem. Indeed, he says, and for Zion with great zeal. What is life like? What would life be like if indeed the living God were zealous for you? Well, I guess some things would be true, like what it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Because let me tell you, the, this work this of the incarnation, of the atonement and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the greatest work that could be imagined. In comparison with it, the, it was the Edwards group were speaking of this on Saturday. The work of creation is a much lesser work. It was a great work indeed. It shows the glory of, of this all-wise and all-powerful God, but it is nothing compared to the incarnation and atonement and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The kind of things involved are mind-boggling. What was required to accomplish that is beyond anyone's thoughts. Only, only an infinite mind could have even conceived of these things let alone accomplished it. The apathy of the Lord wouldn't have done it. The lukewarm affirmation of the Lord would not have done that. The only thing that could have possibly brought such a great work to be done for us, sinners as we are, is the zeal of the Lord. Apart from that zeal that is willing to to break down every barrier, to pay any price, to do any work, that is what has brought us salvation, the zeal of the Lord. Of the Lord. Nothing less than that could possibly accomplish it. And that's the good news. The Lord is zealous for us. Yes, indeed. He was angry with his people, and rightly so. But he has not forgotten them. He is, in fact, zealous on our behalf. He's not turning a, a deaf ear to the, the son who is pleading, who is interceding on the people's behalf. But rather, he is eager to assert that he is zealous and, in fact, will be merciful to us. That's the good news. And thirdly, another aspect of this is that God is angry with the nations. It says in verse 15, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Now, just as a preface, God says that he was a little angry with his people, Meaning that at long last, after so many centuries of unrepentant sin and rebellion, he finally carried out his warnings to punish them. But even then, he describes himself as being a little angry because he is speaking about his covenant people. He's not turned them over to his everlasting wrath. They're not reprobate in that sense, though I'm sure no doubt many individuals among that group probably were. But speaking in terms of his covenant people, this was in that category, this was discipline rather than pouring out his wrath. They're not reprobate. He was a little angry with them, and they were disciplined because of it. It was no small discipline, true. But this was the category that we should think of. This is what he's saying. It's a little angry. 
And then there's that addition, and they helped. Speaking of these, these other nations, they helped, but with evil intent. What it means is that the nations, most, most significantly Babylon herself, but also some of the other neighboring nations, were glad that this happened. They hated Judah and were glad that they had the opportunity to do their worst tour. And you, you have the stories in the historical books of some of how those other nations also uh, uh, with, uh, with glee uh, were triumphing in that. And some of them even gave a little bit of help to Babylon in the work that they were doing as they um, also lent their evil hands to the work. Well, what, it, I, what I get from this you see, as, they, as the Lord points out that they did this work and he and his providence used it, but with evil motivation, is a reminder of the sovereignty of God. Because, yes, he used these pagan nations to judge his people. And, yes, he made use of it even though they did it with evil intent. But it's not going to stay that way. He is going to judge them. He's going to hold them accountable for that. And the great example of this, and, and if you're, maybe this will help clarify all this in our mind, is, of course, surely the greatest crime ever committed, which is the death of Christ. How did that happen? What did God use to bring that about? Think about the long chain of events. He used Judas. That was part of his sovereign plan to bring about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He used Judas. But Judas did it for evil intent. He's in hell now. We know that. He's one of the few people that we can be absolutely certain are in hell. He did it out of envy. He did it for the, the 30 pieces of silver, whatever. And, and with that evil intent, he, he's judged for that. He's being judged for it right now. And what about the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes? They did it certainly out of, out of envy and hatred. And uh, even though their, their, their uh, agency was necessary in the course of events, they're going to be judged for that. And what about Pilate? He was used. But he was, he was supposed to be a just judge. And in the fact that he, he, gave an unju- he rendered an unjust judgment, of course, he's going to be judged and so on and so forth. With all the whole chain of events, God used these things, but they're not going to go uh, free. They are going to be judged for it. And in all of it, the wonderful thing is that God is sovereign and that he's glorified throughout it all. Even in the worst sin, the worst crime that could be possibly imagined, when a people dare to lift their hands to kill their God, yet he's glorified. And all those things, exactly the, the, the work that he intended to do was carried out without any exception. All those details, by the way, were prophesied. Lord had prophesied that a friend was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. All the rest of those things that they were going to cast lots for his clothing, all those things prophesied in accordance with his will. Yet, they themselves will be punished because they did it with evil intent. Well, the point of what he's saying here, and it's saying that he's angry with the Lord, again, uh, angry with these nations, again, under this heading, the larger heading of God's zeal for his people is that he's not looking unnoticed. You, you remember the people as they're pictured in Babylon. They're sitting there by the river, and they are, they are feeling terrible because here they are. They've been humiliated. They've been taken captive, and their captors are saying, why don't you sing us some songs of, Babylon, or of, of Jerusalem? Why don't you sing us some songs of your homeland? And they say, how can we do that? Here we've been... Our, our play, the, the temple has been destroyed. Our homes have been trashed. We've been thrown out of the land. So many of us have, have suffered. And here these wicked men are asking us 
to sing a song of Zion. And they cry out, don't they? They cry out that God would bring his judgment upon them. They recognize their own sins. They recognize that they were brought there justly. But they say, but Lord, don't forget about them. And the Lord says, I haven't forgotten about them. I haven't forgotten about Israel. I am going to bring you back. I am going to have mercy upon you. And I haven't forgot about those who have done you wrong. I haven't forgot about those who stood up as enemies against God's people. I know about that. And I'm angry with them. And that's good news for us. Because, again, there is no salvation apart from judgment. In this fallen world in which we live, there is no such thing. You can go through every example in all of Scripture from beginning to end, and every last action of salvation for God's people also means judgment for the enemies of God. Absolutely, from beginning to end. And here it is, exactly. It was because of his judgment on these others that he's going to bring salvation. And, you know, if he didn't hold them in check, if he didn't judge them, if he didn't break their power to some extent, there's no way that they would be saved, right? That's the way it goes. It wasn't until the end of that Babylonian empire and the advent of a new king who thought rather differently that the people uh, were saved, that the people were brought into land and enabled to rebuild the temple. He had to bring judgment in order to bring salvation, and much, much, much more so with the enemy of our soul, Satan. We know that he was judged at the cross. There was a work of judgment that was going on as well as a work of salvation for his people. And so it will be in the end of days. And we know that even those whose whose suffering is the very worst on earth today, even those people who right now are seeing their relatives and their their friends, their children being slaughtered by, by ISIS, They can live in confidence knowing that a sovereign and just God will bring those enemies to justice. Well, he is angry with the nations. That is actually part of the good news because that means he's not going to let them run roughshod over his people. He's going to save his people in the midst of them. He's going to preserve them. He's going to save them. And fourthly, he will again build Jerusalem. He's he's zealous for his people. He's not going to leave it a wasteland. I mean, that's what it was at the time. But he says, I'm zealous. I care about this people. Verse 16, therefore, says, thus says the Lord, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. What are those elements? He's going to build his house there. That's the great narrative of the Old Testament. That is the the whole progression from the beginning that he is, after the fall, he is gradually, bit by bit, showing that he's going to dwell with his people. And from the the pillar of, of fire and of smoke to the tabernacle to the temple, and then, of course, in Christ himself and in the church, and the new heavens and new earth, the whole trajectory of that is that God is going to dwell with us. He is going to make his home with us. That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't really, in the end, matter all the other details of our house. What matters most, of course, is that God is dwelling with us. We're, we pray for the day that the Lord would give us a building. But we know that what matters most is that the Lord goes with us, that he will dwell with us. And this assurance to us that he is returning to Jerusalem and that he says, my house shall be built in it. Again, of course, he is particularly speaking of the temple, and it was rebuilt. But for us, 
In the larger spiritual sense, he is saying, my house, my dwelling place will be among you as my people. That's good news. It says also that the cities will be spread out through prosperity again. Verse 18, I will say to you, well, now, um, my, my, my thought on this, of course, again, the basic idea is just simply these cities were deserted. They were ghost towns. And that in his zeal and in his goodness and mercy to the people, that there is going to be a prosperity returning. There's going to be more people, that they were going to be fruitful and multiply. There would be sufficient food for them to do that, and that these towns would be grown up. But again, what is the larger picture here that this is all pointing to? I think it's what it says in Matthew 16. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What does he sell us for? What is he talking about? There is, it's not just Jerusalem. It's not just Judah. It's not just one people anymore. It's that he is building his people, the church, the whole body of Christ, the, the spiritual seed of Abraham, that he is building us up, and he says he's going to build his church. And we could so easily put ourselves in the very same situation and look around and see the desolation. I mentioned it this morning, these empty churches. We can look back at to see what the church was like maybe 70 years ago or more than that. But we could also say, does the promise of the Lord apply to us today? That he is going to build his church. And I think that it does. I think it's because he's zealous for us, and he can't bear to see it forever desolate. He couldn't bear to look at Jerusalem forever and see it deserted and to see its walls broken down and its temple destroyed. He was in his zeal for his people. He was jealous for them. He was zealous for them, and he would ensure their prosperity again, and much, much more so with his precious blood-bought church. I don't believe it is will that forever it will remain in desolation here in this country. But the zeal of the Lord will bring about its prosperity. He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what he proclaims, finally, in the end of verse 17, the Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. And we must never underestimate the power of words of comfort. You know, they are so powerful, even in a secular sense, you... um, just to use a, a, a very garden variety, military type example, you, what is it that the general or the colonel is doing as he's walking around in the trenches, walking around on the eve of battle? Does he have some profound words to say? Every once in a while there is a profound speech, but that isn't ordinarily what happens. Ordinarily, he's just saying a couple words of common comfort to, to the troops. He's just saying, be strong. I'm with you. We're in it together. Those kind of things. That's all he's saying. And those words have great power over those soldiers on the eve of battle. The words of comfort. Well, how much more so when these words come from the living God? When he comes and says comfort, yes, that's, isn't that what it says in, in Isaiah 40? And this turning point of Isaiah, the whole 39 chapters before it have been a prophesy of of judgment and destruction. And then the great turning point. And what does it begin with? Comfort. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That was a prophecy for their day. Their day of after they had indeed suffered this 
Babylonian exile, the Lord was speaking comfort to them. And we should remember the great power of words of comfort. And this, this gospel, this is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it brings sinners to conviction, doesn't it? When I, I speak of these things, it should bring sinners to conviction. They should re- want to repent and realize that God is their judge and needs, they need to repent and turn to him in faith. But to God's people, these words should be great comfort to us because that is God's words to his people. He wants you to be comforted. And we ought to receive these words. I have some applications, of course, for that. I want us, first of all, to be reminded that the angel yet speaks on our behalf. The angel hasn't gone anywhere. Yes, the angel, interestingly, later on took on human flesh. And one of the greatest mysteries that could possibly be conceived. And yes, he lived among us. And yes, he died on the Roman cross. But he didn't stay there. He rose again. And as I mentioned, he lives evermore to make intercession for us. And he yet speaks on our behalf. That was not a one-off occasion. That was not the one time that that happened. In fact, what we know now is he is constantly making intercession for us. And I want you to grasp a little bit of Paul's logic in Romans 8. He is good at logic, isn't he? And you need to use that force. You need to use it like a lever in your mind and your heart to, to get out the, the error and the falsehood and to get rid of Satan's lies. And you need to use it as a tool instead to bring about the clarity of the gospel in your hearts. And this is the, the question. This is the logic in, in Romans 8. Who is he who condemns? Good question, right? Because somehow we still walk around as if any moment, there's a disaster waiting to happen because we're, we're thinking we're going to be condemned. And the question is, who is it? Well, there is someone who condemns on the last day. He's the one whom the kings of the earth are saying to the mountains, fall on us because they can't stand the wrath of the Lamb. They can't stand to look at the eyes of the Lamb who has come in his wrath to judge them. He is going to, going to come to condemn, but who is he? Well, it's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us, for those who are in covenant with him, for those who are in union with him. We are his body. He is making intercession for us. The very same one who is the judge is also the one that is making intercession. So we have a couple of lawyers among us. Imagine if the defense was also the judge. Can you imagine that playing out? The defense is making an impassioned plea, a summary argument to save someone. And then he goes up and he puts on the the robe and the wig and he sits down and he says, you're right, not guilty. How about that? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is for his people. Who is he that condemns? He is the one who makes intercession. He is the one who died for us. And having died, what more is there needful? What more is he not willing to do? He's the judge. We don't have to worry about it because he's on our side. Second application is that we ought to be zealous for him. By the way, again, on these things, we should receive God's comfort. Sometimes I I find it a bit distressing that people don't receive God's comfort. You know, if you're a believer, if you receive him, you need to receive this comfort. That's his desire for you. You ought to be assured of your salvation if, if you're indeed put your faith in Christ. If he's speaking words of comfort for you, you ought to receive them. We ought to receive them in faith. And he says, secondly, that, he's, that if, 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 we're, if he's being zealous for, for us, then maybe we should be zealous for him. 
You know, the idea of his zeal for your salvation, he's, and I want you to understand too, he is zealous for your holiness. He is jealous as with us like a bride. He cares about us. He is zealous for your purity. He cares about those things. You're precious in his sight. He wants you to be pure and unspotted from this world as a, as a perfect bride. And if he's been so zealous for us in that he was willing to endure death itself and the wrath of God for our sins, if there is indeed nothing that would stop him from securing our salvation, couldn't we be zealous for him? I mean, sometimes I have to, you know, I, I, it's amazing to me when we think about God being zealous for us because why? What's so wonderful about us? Well, he thinks so, I guess. He, he says he's zealous for us, and he shows it. He demonstrates it. We know it's true. Why then can't we be zealous for him? Why can't we have a little zeal for him? Is it so right to be half-hearted or lukewarm? The Lord doesn't think so, by the way. In Revelation 3.15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The Lord's word to us is, is pretty clear. He's not impressed by lukewarmness. He's done everything. There's nothing left for him to do. There's nothing more he could prove his love, demonstrate his love, manifest his love, his concern and his zeal. It knows no bounds. There's absolutely nothing in heaven and earth that could not be done more than what he's done. However inexplicable his zeal might be for us, he's done it. He is zealous for us. The Father is zealous. The Son is zealous. The, The Spirit is zealous for us. Can't we be zealous for him? It's not so unreasonable. Thirdly and finally, I would say that we ought to spread out. It says, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. This is God's wonderful promise. This is his desire for his people. And in accordance with what I was saying this morning as I was lamenting the current state of the church, I I just say this. Did you know that there was once a Newcastle Presbytery of the English Presbyterian Church? Again, it's not so long ago. I'm not speaking of a northern presbytery. I'm speaking of a Newcastle presbytery because there were something like eight churches, Presbyterian churches in Newcastle, another three in Gateshead, one in places like Hexham and Sunderland and so forth, and they had their own presbytery because of that. Well, is it so impossible? Is it so unreasonable that we might be able to spread out? The Lord has his gracious purposes and his gracious promise that he's going to build the church. Again, it is an amazing thing that we live in a day of mercy. But maybe, maybe the Lord will again build up these tents of Zion that have fallen down. Not because of us, certainly not. But because the zeal of the Lord might accomplish it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what better news could there possibly be than that we have an intercessor in heaven who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, your own beloved Son. And Lord, we know that you listen to him because indeed you have made this as a provision. It is your will that he intercede on our behalf at whatever cost. And you listen to him. 
And Lord, you yourself declare that you are zealous for your people. What more could we desire? What good news is there, Lord, that you will accomplish our salvation? You will save us from your enemies. You will build this church. You will have mercy upon us. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord God in heaven, we pray that we would not be anxious at all. We would receive your words of comfort, knowing that they are true, knowing that you have manifested your zeal for us throughout history. And Lord, we pray that we'd not be lukewarm, but rather zealous as you have been zealous for us, as is only right, as is only reasonable for us to be. And that, Lord, how we pray that in your mercy and grace and zeal, that you would indeed spread us out, both this church and the other churches that we seek in your providence and good hand of blessing to plant in this land. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.